0: Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Intersection Education Podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Corey Haley. If you happen to hear a bit of spring in my voice, it is because we're on summer break here in Canada. The weather's been great and it's been uh, just kind of calming to have a few extra hours in the day to be with family and work on things that bring me energy, just like this podcast. My guest today is Dr. Eric Anktal who is a professor of media and technology in the School of Education at the University of Portland. The focus of much of Dr. Engtel's work is to search for humanity in a techno-human world and to shed light on the hidden shadows of change beneath the surface as humans evolve side by side with their technological creations. Eric shares his thoughts on the use of machines in our lives and gives some strategies to become more mindful about how we use them. If you like what you're hearing, connect with Intersection Education. You can go to our website, which is intersectioneducation.com, or follow us on Twitter, at IntersectionEd. We really appreciate it also when you rate us on iTunes or leave a review. Without any more introduction, here's my conversation with Dr. Eric Anktel. Hello, Dr. Anktil. Thanks for agreeing to speak with me today.
1: You're welcome. It's great to be here.
0: Yeah. So let's get right into it. I am uh, I know that you're at the University of Portland right now, but uh, maybe talk about how, how you became a teacher. What were some of your early experiences that led you to the teaching profession?
1: Sure. So I feel like I kind of fell into teaching a little bit by accident. I was planning to go to law school out of college, and I realized after talking to my mom for a long time and visiting law schools that I was more interested in in um, going to law school than being an attorney, and that didn't seem like a good reason to incur student loan debt to go to law school. And so I started pursuing um, a PhD in English, and when I realized how bad the job market was, this was back in the mid-90s, and still is really for English professors, it's just a, it's always a tight market for the humanities. I thought, what am I going to do, departing university with a <clears throat> with a master's in American literature, and so I started teaching high school and I really enjoyed it. <clears throat> and I was just a high school humanities teacher and, and enjoyed it. And, and it was fun. And I started getting a little bit restless after a few years. And I was encouraged by some mentors to go back and pursue a PhD and to, um, I don't know, be a teacher at that scale. Um, and And I loved it. And so I, it was just a really good choice for me. And so getting into the professorate through that route was a really good one for me. Um, I got my Ph.D. at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And then um, my first job was at Washington State University. And then I, after five years, I ended up at the University of Portland, which is in my hometown. Um, and so uh, it's very rare that that um, academicians end up back in their hometown, but I was fortunate enough to. And I love being at the University of Portland. So when I introduce myself to people, I say that I'm a professor of media and technology in the School of Education at the University of Portland. Because so much of my work is really about people's relationship to machines on a really broad scale. And so I feel like it's not just classroom based technology I'm interested in. I'm interested in things like what will operating rooms feel like when a surgeon is deferring to some kind of AI or some kind of automated process for doing a surgery? Or what will nursing feel like when the, and it started this is happening now? What does it feel like to be a nurse sharing the room with a computer? That is managing patient care. What is the world going to feel like when we don't have experiences talking to checkers um, because we have a checkerless experience shopping? Um, How will it feel when we don't have servers um, who we interact with day to day um, when we're getting our food? And so, what, what does that world look like? I happen to be housed in the School of Education. I think about in terms of educating people, but I'm really thinking about it on a broad scale. So that's why I introduced myself that way.
0: Yeah. I'm interested about how you came to be interested in technology. Were you interested in technology in the, in the classroom? And then that was just a natural um, progression towards academia and your work in the university or or where did that come
1: from? Do you think? Um, I think I've just, I've always had an interest in machines. Um, I remember as a child seeing the original twilight zones. And one of the things that I loved about those, episodes is that they would feature people trying to manage a changing landscape when it came to things that that we created but couldn't really control so you might remember some of the old twilight zones would be an episode about um, a man who is resistant to technology's intrusion into his life and he eventually gets chased around his house by all the machines that have taken on life so his shaver is trying to kill him in his mind and, and his television starts talking to him in his telephone. And, and he is literally chased by these things until his car um, drives him into his own swimming pool. And that's how he ends up dying. So he's literally chased to death by his machines because he was so afraid of, of what they were doing to his life, the intrusion that they were having um, into how he behaved. And I love that episode because it was really a comment around how people Back in the 50s and 60s, we're dealing with a really changing land, you know, a profoundly changing landscape around space exploration and computers. And I just love that. So it started early for me with things like that. But it more, um, I would say that around 2000 or so, when we started putting things into our hands and and into our pockets, like early cell phones and stuff that my interest in this really expanded, especially about how people deal with. Social spaces, relationships, um, uh, getting information with something in their hand—that's um, really where my my interest, I, I guess, says, gets accelerated on that.
0: So, is one of the? Uh, I was reading some of your um, work, and one of the mm-hmm. terms that you use is the techno-human future. I think you've been touching on that, but you want to define that term for us or, or that idea. Sure.
1: Yeah, and I and it's one that gets used some. And there's in fact there's a book out um, that came out I don't know about eight or ten years ago um, with techno humans in the in the title and and talking about these relationships. It's not transhuman. I think a lot of times people um, think uh, they might hear the word transhuman or they may not know that that's what we're talking about. But transhumanism is when uh, humans and machines become one. This idea that there'll be a singularity. This idea that we will have a hard drive that is connected to our brains and we could offload memories or we could offload information and that that would be part of us, like a cyborg kind of experience, having something in your eye that is permanent and implantable that allows you to see better. Um, And so there's this this idea that we have a transhuman future, that it's inevitable that we will evolve into our machines or our machines will evolve into us. But I like techno-human better. And to me, it's almost more philosophical, but it's this idea that we are humans living alongside our machine creations and that we don't have to evolve into them. And in fact, if we're going to, we have some pretty serious ethical considerations that need to be uh, addressed um, when it comes to how we um, live with our machines. And I prefer thinking of us living side by side with them, not being integrated within them. And when we're side by side with them, it allows us, and when we talk about it in that, I guess, in that framework, it allows us to have conversations about how that machine is influencing our behavior. So a really simple example would be, um, I think people a lot of times um, assume that it's only teenagers who are addicted to their screens and like lose themselves in their screens. And you can kind of imagine like older generations uh, lambasting the, the, the young people for being lost in their machines. But if you go out in public, you see people older people lost in their machines and my mother-in-law oftentimes gets lost in her device and my kids will prompt her to rejoin the social situation that they're all in and to me that's a very techno human response that the the kid is noticing an adult a grandparent exiting a social space and they feel like it's their responsibility or duty or they just want the attention so they try to pull that person back in with them and um when you're that grandparent, I think you have to ask yourself, where, what social space should I be in right now? And how is this device in my hand threatening what would be a more normal social space to share with my grandkid? And this is parents are like this, kids in class, teachers are like this. Anytime that we're being our our attention is being shifted in some way, it gives a lot of power to that machine. And I think that that has a lot of consequences for relationships. And we exit social spaces with people we really love and want to be with. Does that diminish our relationships with them in some way? And the machine has a lot of power in that moment. So I'm really interested in those relationships and what that looks like.
0: You talked about some of the other ethical considerations outside of that relationship piece. What are some of the Mm -hmm. other big questions uh, around ethical considerations that you think that we need to address as we move forward with this techno human future?
1: Yeah, I think there's a, well, there's a lot. Um, I'll give a couple examples. Some of them are with, um, like one is, and I and maybe this is something you've seen me write about, but this idea of having a third parent in a parenting relationship. So we have baby monitors, which everyone has had for 20, 30 years, which are really just two-way radios. Um, but now we're able to put a camera into a nursery, let's say. So you have a baby being monitored by a camera and it's gathering data about that child when it wakes, um, when it falls asleep, how much it's stirred in the night. You can imagine embedding things in the bed itself. Um, So that you can tell how well a baby is sleeping. And then you can imagine giving it a voice, this artificial intelligence. You can imagine involving it in the parenting process. You can kind of imagine it um, being able to access information about hundreds of thousands or millions of babies and being able to come up with uh, predictive solutions to parenting problems. Like when should I feed the baby so that it'll sleep the best? Mm -hmm. Um, is that a cry that I need to go in and address or does the AI tell me, no, it's okay. Let the baby cry through it. And so you've really introduced a third parent into a parenting relationship. And I just don't think we think about it because it happens so gradually that it's not the kind of thing we really consider.
0: Yeah. Now, now let's switch that over into the classroom because that's, that's what we're about here. We, we definitely want the general sense. And I think that it is really important to be responding to social, um, social movements and things like that. So where are you seeing this techno human future um, integrate itself into the classroom? How are you seeing that this might influence um, the teacher of tomorrow?
1: Yeah. And that's a great question because I, I think that it's really important that our teachers today be thinking about the fact that if they're teaching a third grader, that third grader someday will be 30 years old and they will be in a position where they're potentially making decisions about the relationships that we have with our machines. So I say to the teacher and the parent today, it is your obligation to help today's third grader figure out their relationship to their machines now so that they can bring in healthy habits into the future. Because it's really about creating habits of mind around our engagement with our machines. So an example to me would be discouraging parents from blaming devices discourage so and I know there's a temptation there like especially if you're dealing like with a middle schooler and you're dealing with video games or you're dealing with cell phone usage or other things that feel like you're constantly trying to parent around them, my advice is to ha- not make it about the machine but make it about the relationship to the behavior and so that it's I'm trying to empower a child to step away from, from something and see it for what it is, not saying the if we just didn't have that damn cell phone, then this wouldn't be a problem right. because that damn cell phone of today will be a roboticized companion in 20 or 30 years and will have a lot more power than it has today. So it's in, to me, it's in those little things. So I think that thinking about teachers who are resistant to bringing technology to their classrooms, for me, the question is, is, well, where's the resistance from? Mm-hmm. And then what obligation do you have as a teacher to help meet students where they need you to meet them. If you had a student come into your classroom who was having trouble reading, you wouldn't say, yeah, but I'm not, I just we just don't really do literacy in my classroom because I have to (laughs) teach math. It's like, no, math is, it's all part of the same literacy. And so your policies around how you engage with technology or how you keep it at a distance, distance to me, are setting up a future where we could be adversarial with our machines or we make our peace with them in some way today. Mm -hmm. So when we're the future coders of tomorrow, or even more scary, we're the ones who are trying to oversee the code being written by the computers, that we're trying to interject our humanity into that and not let the machine dictate our behavior. And so for me, when it comes to teachers, I always just say, try to have as open heart as you can, as much of an open heart as you can around these things, because our future kids and who will be adults really just need you to have an open heart to it, even if it's uncomfortable for you today. You just I just think really have an obligation to to help to help kids make their peace with their machines.
0: But it sounds from what I'm hearing from you, it's yes, make your peace, but also um, concentrate on the lessons that will serve them in the future, which is more about how you use the technology and the fact that it is still humans who operate machines as opposed to, as you said, you know, blaming the machine or the machine having influence over us, which may Mm -hmm. happen down the road, but not quite yet.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and, yeah, that's definitely how, and, and and just calling out that relationship, you know, and, and ask, you know, and you can ask kids if this, if you weren't, if you weren't texting this communication in your relationship, how might your language change about how you would handle that situation? Instead of saying, well, if we just didn't have Snapchat, then this wouldn't be a problem, which is true. If we didn't have Snapchat, this wouldn't be a problem. But you could also say if we didn't have penicillin, we wouldn't have cured your infection when you were four and you wouldn't be here today. And this wouldn't be a problem. Like you you can take it to these ridiculous extremes that if we just didn't have this out of the other thing. And um, I just think it's more important to just engage the behavior itself. Mm -hmm. And then the machines are just part of that.
0: (laughs) Now, I know that you, you work with teachers still today. If you uh-huh. were to look at all of that body, and, and I'm asking you to kind of generalize, what would you say that, that we're doing really quite well? And um, what might you say that we 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 should really look at improving? Would it be, uh, and I'll let you do the positive the positive one, what are we doing well? And I wonder if it is the same um, question you just gave, this whole idea of our relationship with the machines and technology. But w- w- what might we be doing well?
1: Well, I think that, you know, one of the things that makes um, teaching with technology or having technology in your classroom difficult is it's hard to innovate with it because you try something and it doesn't work out very well. And then it's just like, well, there was that was a failure that just didn't work. So we won't we won't revisit that or we won't do it again, which is too bad because that's not really how innovation works. (laughs) Innovation works when you can fail and you can fail repeatedly and then eventually you work towards a better product or a better outcome or whatever it is that you're you're striving for so i think one of the things that makes it really hard to teach with technology is that we stop short um, because of our failures and then we have outside pressures on us like uh, some sort of accountability or people want to know what is it that you're actually teaching what is it you're actually doing and sometimes all you're trying to do is just innovate your practice there doesn't have to necessarily be a thing that is the final product maybe it's just the experience itself so someone might say You know, you used Google glasses or uh, Google goggles, let's say, and had a VR experience with your class, which is super cool. What was your product, though? And you might, and and the product was that the kids got to see the national park system in the United States, and it was super cool. Mm -hmm. What was the final product? There, that was the final product. And I worry that sometimes that's not enough. So what we're doing, I think, what we're doing well is the teachers who are able to take a risk and um, I don't know, optimistically. Capture their failures, or just that we just did something for its own sake, and the kids liked it and it was pretty cool. The teachers who can with confidence embrace that ethos, I think, are the things that are going well. Because you have to have a really open mind around these things because they won't go well. In terms of an area I think we can improve is I will sometimes have undergraduates who are in um, in our education program. So when they graduate after four years, they're licensed teachers. Um, So they're in a it's definitely a professionally minded. uh, pre-service program and they will say that in my technology class they'll come in and and they'll make statements like i'm just not good with technology and i see them sitting with an open laptop and they have a cell phone out and they are seemingly good with technology and so i will push back on that and i'll say what do you mean you're not good with technology you're sitting in a chair and that's that's technology it was revolutionary at some point in our evolution you're amazing at, at how you sit there i've seen you use a pen um, you know, like, where do you draw the line on technology? And what does that mean? And I think what they're really saying is, is I'm not very good thinking about using technology that's unfamiliar to me. And, and I I appreciate that. And so that's just really fear. That's not really about the technology. That's about fear of doing something that's that's foreign. So I feel like part of my job is to help um, address those fears and to to help students work towards a place where they can be comfortable with discomfort. With these things and we don't know what the outcome might be and let's just try it anyway and so I think that's an area um, to resist the temptation to say I don't do technology and instead say I'm new to this part of technology and I think that's really the challenge for for uh, people who come to it um, with reluctance
0: I want to come back to an idea that you just spoke about and that is the experience as a product I know that mm-hmm. many of my conversations or many of the things that I am reading, um, there's this huge emphasis on just, you know, we need to be producers of media. Students can't be just passive observers. Everything, if it has any quality at all, it needs to result in this product created by students. But you just mentioned something uh, that that is a bit contrary to that, and that is that the experience can be a product. Um, do, do you care to maybe... Talk to me about that. I mean, sure. uh, Do do you find that you get this push for all this creation of of stuff with technology, Um, and and it sounds like you're you're kind of saying there's a room for both.
1: I am, and I think that one of the things that makes this particular area difficult is that, and this this is especially true in the United States, is we have this push towards just the aggregate, the gathering of data. And so if you are a classroom teacher, and we have this at the university level, we really have this in K-12. If if you're teaching at the end of the day, there's always this idea that someone is going to come and audit the experience. And so what were the products? What were the test scores, let's say? Or for at the university level, it's what projects were done? How were they scored? How do you know that, would, that, that the students were actually learning something? And so to me, I I, I have a... I think of it as kind of an auditing function. And so um, the grand audit is what I often jokingly refer to it as. This is the end of the day. This is how did you assess the students in their learning? And that puts so much emphasis on a tangible product that's reducible to a number that it really, to me, undercuts the experience of what went into that number or what we would want to assess. And I think that there's this tension between these two things. Teachers want to create an experience in the classroom that they feel like the students will take away and it isn't about a number. And in fact, I think a lot of teachers would be horrified to think um, that they taught 11th grade math uh, calculus, let's say, and that a student came away and the only thing they really took away from the experience was that they got a C yeah. and it wasn't what they wanted. And it's like, that's not what I want to do to That's not the experience I wanted for you at all. You know, we were in a physics class and I wanted you to have a, you know, to appreciate how physics works in our world and how mathematics is integrated and part of that. That's not anything about a grade. So I think there's this tension between the final product that you can show to an accreditor or some sort of assessor, an auditor, and your natural inclination as a teacher to just want to have an experience that people can have a love for learning and a love for the content that you have as a teacher. Yeah. And those things are often in conflict with one another. And I feel like what teachers try to do is they try to do both. They create an experience and then they say, oh, but we have to make sure we have this product at the end of the day too. Mm -hmm. So, but they're not really very well integrated because they're serving completely different process, you know, uh, I don't know, masters, I guess. And that's too bad. And I think when you add technology on top of that, then that puts a lot of pressure on students to have created something like, did they, did they make something with the iPad that we gave them? And I think that's the wrong way of looking at it. The, the iPad is really a tool for a lot of different kinds of learning. And whether or not they created a stop-motion video, to me, isn't as important as what were the ways that it was integrated into a lot of their learning. And stop-motion video could be part of that. Yeah. But it's a, it's a philosophy, I think, that runs contrary to how a lot of um, it states, provinces, um, you know, educational leaders, and, and all the way up the chain um, to where you're getting pressure from, you know. Big bodies saying like what what did these students actually learn and if it's coming from employers or whatever and it's it's a hard It's a hard thing to push back against, but it's where my heart is honestly.
0: No, I and I've heard that same concept um, Spoken about with the term these throwaway projects where there's no passion the kids are just doing it because they've been told to They need a product at the end and at the end they just throw them away It didn't have any meaningful relevance to the student and and I'm hearing you, what you're saying is is exactly what the other people are saying, and that is we can have these experiences, and when we have a product or when we're going to create a product, it needs to be meaningful. We need to be real, really, really, uh, truly engaged with it, and something that we're passionate about, because that's where the learning comes.
1: Yeah, and it's and it's also where the memory of the learning comes. Mm. You know, education's a funny thing because you might learn something in a classroom, and it might be five years later that it actually resonates for you. And you think, well, I'll be damned. It was like, that was the thing. And I just wasn't paying enough attention to it. I wasn't mature enough or I wasn't whatever it was. But so learning is is funny in that because it's not something that's linear. And it's not something that that you can say two days later, oh, that was the thing. No, the thing was many things. And, and again, that's something that escapes an audit. You know, I remember I had a student once and I had a, a, a class I was teaching and one of the things we were taking up was, a lot of issues around social class. And it was about two or three years after she graduated and I had had her as a sophomore in college. And so it's about five years probably after I'd had her in class. And she sent me a a thank you card. Well, it was kind of a thank you card. It was mostly a mea culpa. And she said, I feel sick when I think back to some of the things that I said in this, in your class, your Educational Foundations class. She said, I didn't realize how classist I was. Mm -hmm. And she said, and she thanked, the thank you part was, she said, thank you for not making me feel um, not belittling me for my immaturity or something like that. But it was very touching and actually pretty sad because she realized that she was very different than who she used to be. And there was almost like a there was a kind of like a delayed embarrassment, I think. Mm-hmm. and then, but in the end, it was a really good reach out that she did to me because she was ultimately saying, in the end, I've matured in my way of thinking and I have a softer heart about the topics we were talking about. And that was really meaningful in your class. Right. But for all I know, in her student evaluation, she could have said that this class taught me nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and so you did and so like wh- where's the truth in all of that? Yeah. And I think that we have to give people time to come to their a better understanding of who they are. And that's what learning is. And it's not something that you can oftentimes point back to and say, that that was the there. Here auditor, here's what, here's the score I gave that. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, no, I I absolutely agree. I want to circle back to uh, a topic that we were, we were kind of talking about related to before, earlier in our interview. And that's some of the emerging research around um, technology. I know that here in Alberta, uh, the Alberta Uh Teachers Association did a, a pretty big study called Growing Up Digital, where, I mean, it was just, this massive use of technology. But the part that was interesting to me was that we had this resistance from parents where up to a quarter of them are saying, yeah, there's too much. And then the other piece of that, which I think is hand in hand is, is some, uh, research from the United States, which is uh Dr. Jean twinge with her IGN book, which is some pretty concerning mental health statistics. Um, Kind of, kind of looking for your, your thoughts around that. Um, are we using too much technology? Do you think that it is having a meaningful impact negative or positive on, on mental health of our young people? And, and if so, what are some things that we might be able to do to counteract that?
1: Yeah. The, um, the things that you're talking about, I think are all, are all really good resources for listeners and just in general. Um, because I think that the more aware we are of how technology is is influencing and directing—I was going to say influencing, changing, and even directing our behavior—the more that we can be um, present in the decision making we make around it. So, yes, I think that technology, like all, like I shouldn't say all technologies, but probably there's there's. Pros and cons to almost anything that we've created. I mean, I was joking around a little while ago about a chair being a a technology. And I will sometimes say to people, like if I'm working with a group, I'll say, where should we draw the line of what's technology in this classroom? Like, does anyone want to draw a line with the chair? Should we just get rid of the chairs and all sit on the floor for the day? Um, because that was at some point, if I had gone back 10,000 years ago with this, this exact chair, I would have been like a God and they would have sat me in the chair and probably sat around me and worshiped me for my incredible device, you know, (laughs) but at the, but at the same time, we're learning in the last, in especially in the last several years that, um, sit to stand desks or the idea that you should be at a standing station and not sitting that's in, you can find, you know, all kinds of press over the last several years that talk about how, you know, the more you sit, the higher your risk of, you know, mortality and things like that. You know, um, and so the new smoking kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Know. Oh, that? hold, that's exactly it. I wish I would have thought of that that one because that's exactly it. Just that idea that this, it's sitting is so bad for us. So do we blame the chair? Yeah. Like, is the chair really the problem, or is it the fact that we have people sitting in cubicles and that, or at, or we put a, a person at a station greeting people all day long and they sit in a chair the whole time they're doing that job? Like, where do we really lay blame? for the chair as the new smoking. I I have a hard time laying it on the chair because the chair for a weary traveler is a great place to sit yourself while you have a glass of iced tea and try to catch your breath on a hot summer day. Like the chair can be really, really good. I think our cell phones, our computers, all of those things are like that chair. And it's unfair to say, oh, it's the cell phone. No, it's our behavior around the cell phone. And so the more that we divest from our social circle or our social environment and invest in the screen the more i don't know in a way toxic those relationships can become but i think that the choice to invest in the screen over the people around you is the problem not really the screen now i will say the screen's very addictive and i think that the research that's out and the especially in in psychology looking at how um game designers or app designers or even the designers at apple and google when they build these operating systems they initially were designing it to lure us in not in like a casino in las vegas where they create machines that reward us just enough to keep us engaged i completely agree with the assessments that i've seen and the comparisons that have been made between your modern cell phone operating system and a slot machine Mm -hmm. or video poker i think that's very fair and so when you look at then this the health effects, it, it feels natural to me that if engaging in too much gambling is going to lead to problems, that engaging in too much cell phone use is going to lead to problems. Yeah. So we see them manifest themselves in things like higher suicide rates or higher suicide aviation or a lower self-esteem or higher rates of depression. That makes sense to me in the same way that someone who's addicted to video poker is more prone to steal from their family, run up debt, have low self esteem. Those things all make sense. So I think it's important for us then to 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 try to help people recognize their behaviors around these things and change them to be what they want them to be. But it's not about changing the machine because we just can't change the machine. Right. We've really and, and I can't think of many things in our human history that we've invented a technology and it's been widely adopted. And then everybody universally agrees, we're just going to stop doing that. You know, you can think of things like, you know, it might be something like chemical war agents or something like that. But those are nation state things. Like those are things that are happening on a grand scale. Like we're not going to use mustard gas anymore. And we're going to enter into a convention that we're going to sign papers so we won't use it anymore against each other. But that's not individual users. And so I just can't really think of any technology. That we've just all said, you know what, I think we're done with the scalpel. You know, like it worked <laughs> for surgery and it was a good idea, but we've seen people use it as a weapon. We're going to get rid of the scalpel. Yeah. Same thing with the hammer. Like it's like, so I just feel like we're in this situation now. We The thing we can control, the thing we can manage is our behavior. Yeah. So I like this kind of research because I feel like it puts on the map the things that people should be thinking about.
0: Yeah. I'm going to move a little bit away from technology into Mm -hmm. another one of um, your areas. And I saw that uh, your publication on higher, what is it marketing for higher education institutions. Um, And how I want to get into that is that at least here in Alberta, the university of Portland really has a good reputation. They've been offering classes and programs here in Alberta for, for quite a while now. Um, And, and just as generally seen as, as a, as a as a, a smaller institution, yet somehow has a really good reputation in the field of education. Why, why do you think that might be? What do you think some of the things that University of Portland is doing around education that gives them not only that positive reputation, because anyone can have a positive reputation without something behind that? What are they doing that actually leads to good learning for future teachers and maybe even current teachers in master's programs and educational doctorate programs?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so, the work that I did um, on that book was really extended for me doing a lot of research and work in media and higher education. So, looking at things like big time college sports in the United States or looking at reality television programs that were being filmed um, at U- US universities and like what effect would that have on the larger public around its understanding of higher education. Um, so, that's where that work stemmed from. And then I do a lot of work now in um, masters. Um, program that, that I direct in higher education and student affairs. So I'm regularly thinking about tech and uh, media on, in higher education, but also just thinking about higher education more towards your question. And I think that, you, that higher education is at a funny place right now, because um, it's having to figure out how do we educate students for tomorrow, really not knowing what that tomorrow is going to look like. And what does it mean to deliver instruction and to create experiences that feel meaningful for students that get us away from the traditional model of a lecture style. I think one of the things that the University of Portland an advantage that it's had is that I feel like and, and this is just a, a kind of an opinion observation and things that I've heard. And so by all means, push back on it. <laughs> but I but I have heard students in Alberta, say or in Edmonton say specifically, That one of the things they like about the University of Portland program is it's not a lecture-based program, Mm. and that they it was a relief to them to get away from that. And that's not to suggest that the University of Portland doesn't have a lot of classes that have lectures in them. We do, but in education we don't. And I think it's pretty it's very rare to have a professor come and just lecture for um, a a period of class. It's much more about engaging students in thoughtful dialogue and activities that. promote critical thinking and genuinely doing that. So to your question, I think one of the things that the University of Portland has done well is it executes that model well. It's face-to-face. It's about creating an experience in which you are encouraged as a student to think deeper about the topics at hand. And it's away from that more traditional model of sitting and listening to things. And I think that I had one student, I don't think I remember having one student several years ago um, in Edmonton. And he said to me, Um, what I love about, about, and a lot of times they just call it Portland. What I love about Portland is that your model, he said, there's, he said, when I was at the U of A, he said, I don't think I ever talked in classes because all we did is just listen to lecture in every class I took, even education classes. And he said, this is such a relief. And I think that that's the new way of thinking of teaching in the future in higher ed is creating genuine experiences for people that are away from the traditional model, that are more engaging, that get students to be more critical thinkers and to promote their own ideas. And I think that's what you're seeing.
0: Yeah. Let's continue on on maybe your opinions, uh, which, <laughs> is, which is what I like. Um, generally about education, would you say that there's something that you believe is true that most people would disagree with you on?
1: Yeah, I think that um, one of them, and it gets a little bit back to what we were talking about a little while ago about experience, But I think you can definitely have an experience in a classroom that doesn't produce a product that someone else can come and point to. And it's still a really valuable, good experience. That's right. I really and I just really believe that. And I I think it's really hard to convince people outside of that classroom space that it was that it was, you know, uh, valuable. But I really believe that 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 those things exist. And it's hard to convince an auditor of that. In fact, it's hard to convince people within my own unit of that. People will say, but what's the product? Well, how do you know that that's the case? You, how can you just feel it in your gut? And I'm like, I, I don't know, but I just, the people said this happened or we had this experience or I've, I've witnessed people have that experience at their classes where I'm not the instructor. And I'm like, that was awesome but we don't have any evidence that it was awesome. We just know it was awesome. You know, and so I think that would be one to answer your question. Yeah, absolutely. it's one that I really believe in, but I just yeah, but I just feel like a lot of other people push back on it.
0: There was an article and I want to say it came out of again, the Alberta Teachers Association a few years ago and it was called Everything that counts can't be measured. And oh, yeah, that, that really touches on what you were saying. We can't assign a number to all of these amazing learning experiences. So yeah, that that makes me think of that that research. Yeah. Um. Next, when you think of the term master teacher, is there someone that comes to mind? Is there a ideal? Is there a set of values that you see, and and why might that be?
1: Yeah, I I think that I have I can think of teachers who I have in mind on that um just individuals, but I think that the to me the idea of a master teacher is somebody who is um reflective on their practice um that they They want to improve their practice because it makes a difference to the individual students as they come through their classrooms, not because they want to improve their practice to impress someone else or to satisfy some external entity. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's this kind of authenticity of just wanting students to have a really good learning experience. That's one of the things. I think a master teacher is one who is... Um, willing and able and has an open heart to pivoting. Um, so if something's not working, they will just pivot. And instead of being, um, you know, like I'm committed to making this thing work. Well, this thing's not working and I'm going to pivot and I recognize when I need to pivot and they can read their audience or they can read their moment. And they just are adaptable in that way. And I don't think it's about content as much as it's about the relationship between the content and the student and how they facilitate learning in that. And there's just this kind of like, I don't know, there's a fluidity, there's a kind of a general comforts, I don't know if comfort's the right word, but there's a, just a a fluidity and a familiarity or a, um, it just feels natural. And I really enjoy seeing somebody like that Mm -hmm. teach. And I feel like that's really what a master teacher is all about. And I don't know in, in terms, it's hard sometimes to quantify what those necessarily, those things would necessarily be. It's almost like one of those things where you experience it or you see it and you're just, you you understand what it is. Like art, like that's just really beautiful and cool. And I just like that. And, and someone says, well, what are the things you like about it? And you sort of talk in vague terms about colors or patterns or, you know, artistic choices, but it's, that's not really it. It's just looking at the art that you go. That's cool. I love that.
0: Mm-hmm. Let's say teaching was easy. And I've had people push back on me saying, well, teaching isn't easy, so how could it be easy? But no, let's let's imagine a world (laughs) that Uh um, if teaching was easy, what do you think it would look like if we were to just reduce um, teaching and that whole process down to its most essential? What do you think it would look like?
1: If teaching were easy, well, I think one of the things that makes teaching the hardest is, is that students, I think students have a hard time focusing on things that they see as not entertaining. Hmm. And so, and sometimes it just takes discipline and hard work to get through something. And, and when you get through it, you can look back and, and appreciate the discipline that was required or the hard work that was required. Um, But if you're trying to convince someone to engage in something that they feel like isn't coming easily, Or is it entertaining or is it just naturally engaging? That's a lot of the hard part of teaching. So then that creates situations where you have classroom discipline issues or classroom management issues, um, or you have students who are disengaged or students who don't want to persist in the process. And I feel like that's the hard work of teaching often, are trying to reach those kinds of students, trying to convince them somehow that algebra is meaningful to them. And and in some ways, they're right. We don't do a very good job, I think, teaching math um, and making it applicable Uh, day to day you know it's it's rare that um you have experiences where you see math all around you a really good teacher can bring that to you um and you're like oh my god math is in music it's in design it's in nature i see it everywhere but it, it takes somebody really good at being able to do that the hard part is trying to convince someone um to engage with something that they just don't naturally want to engage with so if it were easy it would be really about i think um students walking more towards that experience And um, and then what ends up, I think what ends up happening often is the better students, the students who are just inclined to um, because of their disposition to be that kind of student, then get rewarded by a system that where it's easier to teach them. And so then they just they already were at a little bit of an advantage dispositionally. They were Mm -hmm. rewarded by a system and then it just perpetuates the success that they're experiencing. So then they end up and I think that oftentimes they end up being teachers because they enjoy the experience and they want to give that to other people. And then when they get in the classroom, they realize, oh, this is a lot harder than I thought, because now I'm dealing with students who are very different than the kind of student I was. And I don't know what to do with them. And I think that's one of the things that makes teaching really, really hard. So I oftentimes ask my students to consider the kind of student they were early on. Mm-hmm. And then what would it be? And then a lot of them, especially at the University of Portland, a lot of them were just good students who, you know, who followed the rules and wanted to be the line leader. And they wanted to know what was on the syllabus and they wanted to make sure they didn't necessarily get it done early, but they always got it done on time. And then now suddenly they're teaching kids who have zero interest in any of the things that help that teacher be successful. Hmm. How do you manage that? And I think that's really where the hard part of teaching is. So,
0: yeah, I'm gonna ask you a few a, questions. Yeah,
1: yeah. sure. Uh, yeah, uh,
0: the where the next questions I'm looking for a, a little bit of a shorter response, just kind of some quick hitters. Sure. Do you have a favorite education-related app or website?
1: Yeah, I like I'm mean, this is a boring one, but I really, really like an app called Note. Uh, what is it called? OneNote. OneNote. Um, I use it all the time. Microsoft's OneNote. I use it on a Mac and I use it on my iPad. And um, it's just it helps organize all my thinking, my classes. Uh, Microsoft OneNote, I yeah. highly recommend. And it's kind of boring because it's not like, yeah, it's not cutting edge or a cool app, but it's it works great.
0: Is there a book that you quote or refer to or have you marked up the most? Maybe one that you give away the most?
1: Boy, that's a tough one. Um, I, so much of the stuff that I do is a really around articles and um, film. I, a lot of my media – and it's funny because I've been wondering, like, where, what's the future of the book yeah. You know, um, you, I think the book is, I'm trying to think of the guy's name, um, but it's called, you are not a device. Hmm. And I really, I like the idea and the thinking in that. So some of the stuff that I've been looking at are, are, um, um, this concept of how controlled are you by your devices mm-hmm. and what does it mean for you to, um, to get away from the devices that you use, um, and be yourself in your relationship to, to, um, your behavior right
0: do you have a film or a youtube channel that you would uh refer people to then
1: yeah i well i find a lot of it in science fiction i got well one one book i just was remembering one book that that um i think has done a really good job of just kind of capturing kind of where we are it's called homo dios and it came out um yeah and um that that he had some really interesting stuff on on predictive algorithms in there and thinking about, um, uh, uh, I'm just trying to remember this off the top of my head, but stuff on Facebook and spooky stuff about how an algorithm basically predicts our behavior even better than we will. And I really loved that stuff. And just and so that, that would be a book. In terms of of media, I find a lot of science fiction to be informative about what we should be thinking about in the future. So I really love things like Westworld, and I always. Whenever I suggest Westworld, the people, I always jokingly tell them they have to watch the original movie first. But that's a requirement of watching it. Um, and things like uh, Humans on the BBC and um, a show about living with robots, essentially. And what does that that world look like? So um, there's a show on Showtime called Dark, Dark Web or Darknet. And um, I can only watch one or two episodes at a time because it's so dark. Um, and so that one's one I, ha- I feel like I have to, uh, I have to, um, I just have to take in, in small doses okay. and also true things like black mirror, but I, I really, yeah, a lot of that media, I feel like is is trying to give us lessons about how we live today and helping us think about things tomorrow.
0: Right. What's, uh, something that you do every day or most days that, that you feel keeps you healthy and well?
1: Um, I get out, I walk a lot and I also, um, I listen to a lot of news, but I also just try to like, just take it in my surroundings without anything. Like if I was going to go for an hour long walk, I might listen to a podcast or listen to an NPR show or something like that. But I also just try to like not listen to anything Mm -hmm. and sort of just to kind of disengage from stuff. So I think that's one of the things is just intentional being intentionally disengaged. Yeah.
0: Is there an organization or person who's inspiring you right now?
1: Um, boy. Well, Stephen Hawking was, but with his recent death, I just, I like the fact that he's the, the, the work that, that Hawking, was doing with others and i mean if i had the list in front of them there are a lot of names that we recognize on them Mm -hmm. but thinking about our relationship to ai and thinking about how what how much power are we giving Mm -hmm. to artificial intelligence kind of in general i that that work and that pushback to me is really critically important and i also really love the work of robert reich i mean he's like one of my heroes he was the former secretary of labor under clinton and um, he does a lot of work on the public policy sphere and he's been taking up things like universal basic income and thinking about um, should we be taxing robots to offset them displacing human workers and things like that. So I'd have to give a good shout out to the work that he does. And he puts out a video with an, uh, or like a weekly or bi-weekly video with an organization that he's he's with. But he's out at the University of California, Berkeley. And, uh, and he's great. Yeah, so just people who are thinking about Kind of, I would almost say, kind of the resistance um, are the the people who I've been paying attention to. Right. So, what's next for
0: you? What are some of the questions or problems that you're looking at tackling next? Do you have any books you're working on or articles? Yeah. Or, well, maybe not books, but <laughs> yeah. the media I mean, that you're putting together.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I I really enjoy engaging with an audience, and I feel, and I've been, I do a lot of. Talks in general. And I, I'm just trying to get that onto a broader stage. And, you know, what's funny about me is I'm not very good at engaging in social media, ironically, because one of my first um, research that I did on this was back in 2006 or seven when Facebook was pretty new. And a graduate student and I did a pretty extensive study looking at how people represented themselves on Facebook um, college students, traditional college, traditional age college students. And we're looking at um, what populate if you were from a certain population were you more inclined to put um, pictures up or advertise your behaviors in certain ways for example if you were um, if you were in a fraternity would you, were you more likely than somebody who wasn't in a fraternity to post pictures of drinking and at what rate and so um we did this study back then but I just never really got into it I'm just not that into social networking but I feel like a really important thing for me to do is to expand my Presence in those spaces because it would help me with things like reaching bigger audiences and being able to bring what I feel like I do well, which is to engage with people mm-hmm. in person. Um, but it's it's just I don't know. It's it's one of those areas that I myself am trying to be a better learner, I guess, or be a better student in it. And um, so that's that's one of the things yeah. the well, challenges for me is. Well, maybe we can
0: help more. you out. How how would people sure. get a hold of you uh, if they <laughs> yeah. wanted to engage with you on social media?
1: Yeah, so um I'm I'm at Eric Engtel just about everywhere because one of the things that I have been good about is being an early adopter for all the all the the major platforms. Right. So at Eric Engtel and then Erickengtel.com. Mm-hmm. And then if that's if those two things are a little tricky to remember, technohumans.com um also takes you to my website. That's great.
0: Well, thank you so much for speaking to us today, Dr. I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to, to, to getting on social media and engaging with you and uh, seeing, <laughs> seeing the techno human future that you're talking about. I think you had some really good points today.
1: Well, thanks very much. It was great um, chatting with you. And I really appreciate the um, the subject matter because I think that we have an obligation to future generations to begin really tackling these questions today in the classroom, in the world, for our, I don't know, just for our humanity. So thank you very much.
0: That's it for my conversation with Dr. Eric Anktil. Hey, if you liked what you just heard, can I ask you a favor? Can you go and follow us on Twitter, which is at IntersectionEd, or even better, share this episode with some of your friends and see if they might be able to benefit from the sage advice that Dr. Anktil and our other guests have given. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next time.